Go ahead and open to Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews since the beginning of uh, February, and um, we say this from time to time, but I don't think I've said it in a while. If you're visiting us, if you've been here um, you know, a few Sundays, you know, how do you decide what you're going to talk about and, and teach on? And, and we'd like to pick books of the Bible primarily and go through a book to learn the primary message of that book by studying it, looking at its context, and, and, and by doing so, we allow the text that we are looking at for that day to choose our topics for us so that um, I don't go on some tangent or get on a soapbox and start talking about something that has absolutely nothing to do with the text itself or Christianity in general. Um, and so we've been looking at Hebrews and been looking at the theme, uh, Hold Fast Your Hope, as you see there in your bulletin. And uh, as last week and this week and then next week, we're going to be in chapter 9. So if you, if you didn't bring a Bible, this is going to be page uh, 1006. And we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 22. And this morning, I think I mentioned this last week, we're kind of slowing down a little bit and, and needling uh, at different places where we really need to slow down and, and, and um, unpack some of this rich material that's here. Last week we looked at our guilt and how our guilt is made clean by the blood of Jesus. Today we're going to look at forgiveness and how really that is the purpose of the blood. And so chapter 9 has been a chapter that is full of talking about this word blood. And so that's kind of where we're going um, both last week and and today and probably next week as well since we'll still be in chapter 9. Having said that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, beginning in verse 15 to 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tents and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And we pray that, as we often do, that this morning that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften hardened hearts towards you. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that you would take our hearts and make them into good soil so that as the word goes out, such as a seed, that it would enter that good soil and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. So when we finished uh, last week, we we mentioned, or I mentioned, that the blood answers our, our guilt Problem. It is the solution to our guilt. But we also said that, you know, the blood of Jesus, it can't just be so that you and I have a clean conscience. It can't just be so that you and I can go about life not weighed down, wondering if, our, um, if, we, wondering if we are fit 
for the presence of God. That's how we phrase that. And, and, and what we, we did sort of say, but we're, we didn't dive into it as much, is that it's true. Guilt is not the end of what Jesus' blood is for. The blood of Jesus is for something else. It's for him actually making us worshipers of him. It's, it's for him making us servers of him for life. Now, that's a huge topic in and of itself. How we get there is what we're talking about this morning, which is really the purpose of the blood, as we read in verse 22, and that is forgiveness. The purpose of Jesus' blood for you and for me is forgiveness. And, and, and because of that, I, I'm really just going to stay right there in verse 22 this morning for us. And I want us to see the three things on your handout there that we're going to look at what forgiveness really is, the cost of forgiveness. We're going to look at the goal or the purpose of forgiveness. And then lastly, we're going to look at how we forgive. How do we do this? So it's the cost of forgiveness, the goal or purpose of forgiveness, and how we forgive. So let's look at that first one, the cost of forgiveness. Before we begin to talk about what forgiveness is, it's important to talk about what forgiveness is not. And, and, and you know, whether you're taking notes, here are three things I would sort of say um, briefly of what forgiveness is not. And I would argue that if we're honest with ourselves, the air that we begin to breathe as a culture, we, this is kind of what we think about forgiveness. And I would also say this, push you in this direction. We think this about forgiveness because we think this is what God does to us. And I would challenge that notion this morning. And the first one is this. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. In fact, if we're honest about ourselves and we think about the confrontations that we've had with others, whatever that may be in your life, we don't forgive and forget at all. (laughs) Right? I mean, like you're asking me, whatever charge has been held against me, whatever somebody has done or how someone has wronged me, the idea that we are just going to forget about this, that it's it's going to somehow escape my memory, that's false, right? We don't do this at all. And and there's, there's a tendency for us to think that we haven't actually forgiven someone until we have forgotten it. And I think that in this way, um, we are confusing uh, what, what the act of forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is not forgetting. In the same vein, forgiveness is not acting like it never happened. Um, and this is a close second cousin to forgetting. You know, it's one thing if I break bro code number 36, which according to the bro codes is, number 36 is, I take the last beer from my bro's refrigerator or cooler and without asking him. That's breaking bro code number 36. It's one thing to do that. And it's one thing to say, hey, I'm sorry. And it's another thing for that offended person to say, oh, it's no big deal. Didn't really happen. I've kind of forgotten about it already. Which even in that situation, I'm not really sure is possible. Who forgives that? <laughs> but, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, oh, it's like it never really happened to an offense like that. But someone breaking into your home, someone assaulting you, someone, you know, maybe you were cheated on in a relationship, like serious offenses. How are you supposed to just act like that never happened? How are you supposed to go on throughout life just saying it didn't really matter? And see, some of us believe that when we offer forgiveness to somebody, that that is the place that I've got to get to. 
And I would argue that that is probably the reason why forgiveness is so hard for us in the first place. Because that is not what forgiveness is according to this text. Lastly, forgiveness is not saying it doesn't really matter. How many times have you been wronged or hurt and the person who hurt you comes to apologize, but you're quick to say, oh, it's no big deal. It didn't really matter. Again, some offenses can feel that way. They can, but if the offense is big enough, to say it doesn't matter is a lie. It can actually cause, in the long run, more damage than the actual offense itself. What we do know about forgiveness, though, and I say we as in the collective we, both the church and those outside the church, is that if it's not done right and we are then, quote, tethered to the past, that hurts turns to anger, which turns, turns into, turns itself, excuse me, which embeds itself deep into the hearts of our lives and gives birth to bitterness. That's, what, that, that's a fact, right? We all agree about that. <clears throat> and let me tell you, this is not a place where you want to be, right? I mean, when's, when's the last time you hung out with somebody who was bitter about everything, just bitter about life, and you loved it, right? You had a great time around that person. That has never happened. We don't want to be around those people, and we don't want to be those people. Like, bitterness is not our lifelong goal. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be bitter, It just happens, okay? It just happens. And the reason it happens over the course of many years is that forgiveness has not taken place in someone's life and that anger has turned the seeds of bitterness in our our hearts and has given birth to that and has changed us. Um, And acting like it didn't happen, acting like it doesn't really matter, acting like, well, I just forgot about it, is almost a surefire way to make sure that we end our lives in deep-rooted bitterness, Christian author Max Lucado puts it this way. He said, hatred is the rabid dog that turns on its owner. Revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. And bitterness is the trap that snares the hunter. Thinking about forgiveness in any of these ways, whether it's forgetting, acting like it didn't happen, or as if it's not a big deal, brushing it off, will not set you free of the wrong and will often lead to seeds of anger, giving birth and way to bitterness in our lives. All right, so that's what forgiveness isn't. What, what, what is forgiveness then? Okay, and I would just, I would submit to you Dietrich Bonhoeffer's definition, which is basically this, forgiveness is suffering. Let me say that again. If you're going to offer forgiveness to somebody, you are saying, I'm willing to suffer for that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way in The Cost of Discipleship, that forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering, which is the Christian duty to bear. In other words, forgiveness is costly. It's suffering. And it's suffering by saying that you are agreeing to bear someone else's sin against you. So true and honest forgiveness means this, that, that we just, and we just read this into the text this morning. This is verse 22. But if we're going to be honest about truly forgiving people, we've got to recognize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the Greek there really kind of, it's, it's more explosive. It's, it's the pouring out 
of blood. It is, it is the, the, the shedding of blood. And without it, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is the purpose of the blood in, in this chapter. And this is the purpose of the blood that Jesus offers us to begin with. Begin with. It is forgiveness. See, blood was always the sign of forgiveness in the Old Covenant, something we've been hearing a lot about. And it is also the sign of forgiveness in the New, new Covenant, except it's the, the true sign. It's what all those old signs pointed to. But it's always been saying that something is going to have to die in order for you to go free, in order for forgiveness to take place. I love how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the Old Covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The Bible takes sin seriously more than any other religious scripture. The second reason is that costliness of forgiveness. Death is payment. It will either be Christ's life or ours. So what is the saying about how I forgive my friend? What is the saying about how I forgive my spouse or my coworker? It's saying, I'm not going to act like it wasn't a big deal. I'm not going to begin acting in our life as if I've somehow forgot about it, confusing forgiveness with amnesia. And I'm not going to act as though it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is looking at offense straight in the eyes and it's saying, I will take it. I will absorb it. So that our relationship, so that you primarily could flourish. That is what the cost of forgiveness is, according to Hebrews chapter 9, and what Jesus is telling us this morning about how we are to forgive. <clears throat> Tim Keller, in his A Reason for God, puts it this way. He says, the two options that we have whenever we have been wronged, and it is now on us, or, or it is, it is, we have the privilege of now offering forgiveness, if I should put it that way. He says, we really have two options. The first is we can take revenge. We, we can go out and we can pursue those people and we can try to do some things that would somehow level the scale, right? And you know, we can think about how big this could look, but really, let's get personal here, right? Happy Memorial Day. Right? Let, let's, let's talk about what this really looks like in our lives. Maybe you start giving the silent treatment to somebody. That is revenge. I'm going to make you pay for this in a certain way. Maybe you embark on a slander campaign in order to try to destroy someone's reputation. Maybe you write them off completely. No more invites, no more lunches, no more coming over uh, to my parties. All that is gone. They're gone. That's the first option. Does it really work? And that's a funny question because it works, it works a little bit. <laughs> like I feel pretty good about giving you the silent treatment because I don't want to talk to you right now. I, I will be better off if you're no longer in my life. It works for a little bit. There is an initial relief, but we confuse that with wholeness. In the long run, there is no relief. In the long run, especially when the offenses are that intense and that deep, what could you possibly do? And I'm thinking, think about the, the bombings in Manchester this past week. What could you possibly do to counter the loss of your eight-year-old? Just to go there for a second. Like, we know this. We know that there's nothing that we can truly do that sets the scale for some of the offenses that have been done to us. But we tend to go at it anyways thinking that this is the way that it will really set us free. This is the first option. The second option is that you can actually forgive them. 
But you can't do that unless you're willing to take that cost upon yourself. By forgiving them, you're not saying this didn't hurt me, it doesn't matter, this is water under the bridge. You're saying, I'll absorb it. I'll take it. <clears throat> the damage it did to me, all of that, for the sake of truly forgiving you. And this is what we mean by the cost of forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And forgiveness, I would argue, that doesn't have some bit of, some bit of suffering in your life isn't real forgiveness according to this text. Forgiveness that we are offering to other people, forgiveness that we are, are, are giving on a daily basis, if we aren't feeling some type of loss and suffering in the midst of that, we're missing Jesus in our forgiveness. I hope that becomes more clear as we move on. Before we do move on to the next point, I want to say this. Forgiveness doesn't mean trust either. I think that's important to, to, to make that distinction. They are not one and the same. If I cause serious harm to someone or break my marriage vows in some form, forgiveness would come at the cost of those offended parties absorbing that pain of stepping into it, so to speak. But it wouldn't require those parties to immediately trust me as well. And in fact, in many cases, I would say it would be unhealthy for them to do that and to demand that. But oftentimes we live in a culture that says, well, you know, we've got to get right back to where we were before if forgiveness really happened. We've got to get right back to where that offense didn't take place if forgiveness really happened, which oftentimes what that means is that you've got to begin trusting and acting towards me in the way that, that, that you did before this offense happened. No, that is not what forgiveness is. It is, it, it is not, forgiveness and trust are not one and the same. They are two different birds. If we are to go on to be a people who forgive, it's going to cost us something, and we need to be sober-minded about that. It may take you years to trust someone again, but it can only, but I can truly forgive you before that happens. And I think it's important that we make that distinction. So this is the cost of forgiveness. This is what forgiveness is. It's going to, it is suffering. It is going to cost us something. But this gets to the second point. What's the purpose of this? What's the goal? You know, are we just sort of out there like offering these forgiveness cards for no real reason? What, what, could, what could this possibly be for? And I would argue and submit to you this morning that the purpose of forgiveness is actually restoration in the offender's life, not your own, although you are restored to you. I would argue that it is about making somebody else more human than anything else. <clears throat> in 2015, NBC anchor Brian Williams at the time um, was caught in clearly lying about a reporting trip he took to Iraq. Um, it made up this ridiculous story about how his, I think it was his helicopter took on fire and they, they, you know, with one last move, they were able to get out of the way of some rocket, some missile coming at them. I can't remember the details. What I do remember was, you know, the charge against him when this broke. And, you know, like, like everyone else, I'm just sort of sitting there with popcorn watching this, just loving this. It's like, what's going to happen? Here's a scandal. And we kind of, you know, we love this, right? You're, I mean, that's, maybe that's somebody else. It's not your pastor. 
<clears throat> right? But some of us, you know, it was a scandal of Thanksgiving proportions. We're just eating it up. And anyway, then we move about our lives. Well, um, David Brooks, who I love to read, I've mentioned him several times before in the New York Times, did an article on the act of rig- rigorous forgiving. And this was hard for me to read, but I think he gets really close the purpose and goal of forgiveness is he was observing the scandal and more or less observing as he, as he says, the barbaric nature of how our culture today responds to a scandal. He ends his argument, he ends his, his post by saying the larger question is how we build community in the face of scandal. Do we exile the offender or do we seek to heal the relationship? This question gets closer to the purpose of forgiveness than we would probably like to admit. And this is restoration of those who have wronged us. The goal of offering forgiveness according to the Bible is not fixing what you do. It's not hoping for some behavioral change, although I bet that happens. Forgiveness, offering it, is about fixing who you are, the person you're forgiving. And in return, you're restored too. It's about restoring dignity to someone. It's about taking the cost so that someone else might flourish. Let me look at this. Let me illustrate this by looking at one of uh, the greatest moments of restoration in all of Scripture, which is Jesus' restoration of Peter in John chapter 21. What happens here? Peter has just sold Jesus down the river three times. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus was executed on a cross, died, and resurrected. And in the midst of that, the disciples, they scatter. Okay? And wondering if they're next, some of them for sure, but I guarantee you, many like Peter, dealing with the weight of their guilt. I've just abandoned this Jesus. I've just abandoned this man that I love. And so there's this scene that John gives us where... Peter's fishing, and, and often onto the shore he looks, and he sees Jesus there making a meal for him. And as the story unfolds, Peter, just, just out of excitement, sheds his fishing gear and jumps in and swims after to go see Jesus and to just be with him. But you're reading this, and you're thinking, man, okay, this is, the, at least as far as we know, this is the first time. Um, it may not have been, but as far as the, the, the John is concerned, this is the first time they've interacted since, <clears throat> since the betrayal, what's going to happen. And as we read this account, we get this amazing picture of how Jesus forgives Peter and how he restores him. And uh, he does it by reminding Peter of Peter's offense in a very subtle way. If you remember, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? And it's kind of like the first time, you know, I get it. Hey, I love you. Feed my sheep. Then he does it again. No, Peter, do you love me? Of course I love you, Jesus. No, Peter, do you love me? And there's no, there's no hiding the fact that Jesus is doing this intentionally. And, and this is where I want to hone in on really why I think forgiveness is so hard for us. It's because forgiveness requires both parties to go to extremely vulnerable places. Think about it. Jesus has to go there. I've got to deal with what you did with me. And I'm not over that yet. That hurts. But he's also got to get Peter to go there too. And there's this moment, it's like a razor's edge, where you have the ability to absolutely crush somebody by either throwing this in their face, by 
pouring more guilt on them by bringing it back up. Or you have the opportunity to completely restore someone. I don't know if you thought about that story in that way. It's, it's, it's kind of strange. Uh, you know, we, we sort of tend to think of Jesus as a nice guy. So we don't assume he's going to do that. But if you think about the times that you have been offended by your friend and there's this moment of forgiveness there, you get to that razor's edge if you are offering forgiveness. And you have that moment to throw it in their face or to say, I'm giving you the opportunity to be restored. And that's what Jesus does here. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Peter to have the opportunity to tell Jesus three times that he loves him? Knowing full well that his guilt has been destroying him inside for the past three days, week, however long it's been. That this would be an opportunity for him to almost not right the wrong, but to be restored. This must have brought dignity to Peter because whoever he was before he reached that shore, he was somebody different by the time that he left. He is forgiven. He is restored. He is more human than when he first arrived. And that, my friends, is the purpose of forgiveness. The change that God has in mind isn't just behavioral for us. It isn't just about fixing the things that you do. It's about fixing who you are. And oftentimes I would argue the most powerful weapon that we have as believers, as the church, is this thing called forgiveness that comes at great cost to ourselves. Now here's the question. Do you see your offering of forgiveness as a way to cause someone else to flourish? Do you think about it that way? Do you see your offering of forgiveness to someone who has wronged you as an opportunity to affirm dignity in them? To call them to something that their actions have not called them to. To say, you're image of God. I will take that cost on myself so that you might have the opportunity. You may not receive this, but I'm at least giving you an opportunity to be restored. Do you see offering forgiveness as perhaps the closest that you and I get to possessing the power of God himself in the lives of people? Forgiveness, y'all, literally is that moment where we are straddling the kingdom of God itself in this earth. And we'll see more clearly here in just a second why that's true. But do you see it that way? That this is what it means to say that I'm taking the cost on myself so that someone else might flourish. That is what forgiveness is. And this is the purpose of it. Otherwise, if we don't do this, we too are the ones who become less human as we drift off into years and years of anger and bitterness. Until death. So how do we, how do we do this? Let's get to it, right? How, how are we going to offer this type of forgiveness at great cost to ourselves? And the answer, as you probably have already seen, we see forgiveness as a way to cause others to flourish by seeing this as exactly what Jesus has done for us. We see forgiveness. We see the possibility of absorbing that cost because we already recognize and receive the great cost of forgiveness that Jesus has given us. We bask, we talked about it last week, we bask in the blood that that, that changes us. Okay, This is how you do this to other people. 
You cannot truly forgive someone until you know that you are truly forgiven and how much it cost. Psychology Today is all in agreement and will tell you that forgiveness is good for your health. A couple articles. The Seven Rules of Forgiveness by Thomas Plant in Psychology Today said that forgiveness is mostly about letting go of anger and that's a boon for your health. Awesome. Check. In another article by Dr. Jason Powers, the title reads, Forgiveness is the answer to almost all of our ills. Let go of resentments and attend to helpful thoughts. You'll live better. Check. Awesome. But here's what's interesting about both of these articles, which nobody's disagreeing that it isn't better for your health. Of course it is. But both of them don't know how you do it. Both of them get to the end of this and they have no answers for how you do this. Plant concludes this article this way, saying, Those who do well and cope best in life are those who have found some way to forgive themselves and others. Some way. What's the way? How? Everyone agrees to the health benefits, no question, yet everyone finds forgiveness extremely difficult. Why can't we do it? And it's simple. You can't forgive without knowing that you are truly forgiven and how much that costs you or how much that costs someone else. It all comes back to the blood. Powers in his article, and I would say this about, this is about as mainstream today as you can get it. He goes on to say, forgiveness is really more about our relationship with ourselves than whom or what we are forgiving. And I would say that therein lies the problem of forgiveness. If you are looking to yourself to find the capacity to take on the cost of what it requires you to forgive people, you will never, ever be able to truly forgive someone. You can't do it. The only way that we do this is we look back and see what it was that was given to us, that rich forgiveness that we love to take on ourselves from Jesus himself. If you could return with me back to Luke 7, this was a couple of sermons ago. This was, I want to I show how the Bible illustrates this with the parable of the two debtors. When we talk about how we cannot have the capacity to forgive, what we really mean is that your ability to love somebody in this way is directly proportionate to how much you think that you've been forgiven. And so, if you remember this, this parable of the two debtors, this is Luke 7. Um, Jesus is invited by the Pharisee Simon to come to his house and have this dinner. And as they're eating in his house, an unexpected guest arrives, and it's this prostitute. And um, Simon has, has a big fit, right? And sort of uh, questions Jesus' nobility, saying, if you knew who this woman was, then you wouldn't let her do this. And so Jesus tells Simon a parable. There's two debtors. One has a huge debt. One has a small debt, but they both cannot pay. Jesus asks, after they are both forgiven, which one would love most? And he said, well, I guess the one who is forgiven the most. And Jesus says, you are correct. Okay. And what Jesus is doing with this parable, is he's actually putting Simon and this woman in, in the story, right? Simon sees himself as someone who doesn't need to be forgiven much. He thinks he's pretty good. The woman knows how much she needs to be forgiven. And she knows how much she is forgiven. And therefore, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are are forgiven little, love little. So what's the point? 
The how of being able to forgive others is knowing how much that you've been forgiven. In other words, your ability to forgive others is directly proportionate to how much you feel that you have been forgiven. How big is your cross would be another way to answer that. You will not have the capacity in this life to love much until you are completely secure and resting in the pouring out of blood that Jesus has already given you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this doesn't mean that we are perfect at forgiving every time. This doesn't mean that <clears throat> you know, we just are able to, on a dime, offer forgiveness in all the right ways. This takes practice and it's part of our growing in Christ. What it means is we are always quick to forgive and be forgiven. It is a posture, it is an attitude almost. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, he died for your miserable attempts to forgive other people. That is, that is wonderful news. And this means that we have the freedom to try and to fail, but to try again. But make no mistake, your ability to, to forgive others is directly proportionate to how much you feel that you have been forgiven. Do you love much or do you love little? And that cuts. Those that feel that they have been forgiven little, like Simon, will forgive others. But up to the point, up to what point? Up to the point to where that forgiveness begins to look more like suffering. If they feel, if, 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 if the Simons of the world feel like they have been forgiven little, they will forgive up to the point to where that forgiveness begins to feel like suffering, and then they're out of there. But if you know how much you have been forgiven, if you know the cost what that has been, been, been given for you, then you, your ability to forgive much will absolutely be the bringing on of suffering for someone else's sins against you. Because there is nothing else in this world that models what Jesus has done for you and the world than what you are doing in that act of forgiveness. And dare I say it is a litmus test for Christians as we begin to understand how are we growing in this grace How are we understanding Jesus' love poured out for us? This is how we will forgive. And so the question for us as we leave this final point is, who are the people in our lives that we are currently loving very little by way of not offering the type of costly forgiveness that we are so quick to receive from Jesus himself? And what would it look like for you to step out into faith and begin loving much, to begin loving at great cost to yourself? What would that flourishing look like in you and in them? This is hard. I hate this sermon. But this is what Jesus has done for us. And we as a body get to collectively come together and encourage one another and do this, not just for our own body, but for the watching world. So we've seen the cost of forgiveness, we've seen its purpose, and we've seen how we actually do this. Let me leave you with this idea of what the watching world sees when we truly forgive. I I got to the end of this, and I know we've been needling a little bit, and maybe some of you all are ready to stop needling and we can go on. I get it. But as I got to the end of this, I was curious, you know, like, we've talked about the original audience, who the author is writing to. 
And we've talked about the, the context of this book. You know, there's, there, there are these Christians who have now since kind of drifted away because of persecution, because, you know, their, their circumstances. And, and I began to again think, you know, why, what is the author's point here? Like, why is he doing this? And especially in light of, of last week, as we talked about the blood and how it wipes away our guilt. Is he just wanting to make sure these people, before they die, know about the love of Jesus? Or is he preparing them for something? Is he preparing them to offer forgiveness for what's coming down the road? And I think that's really interesting as we begin to understand the context of the Hebrews. That look, there is no promise that suffering is going to be removed from your life. What there is a promise of is how we begin to deal with that. How we begin to deal with those who have affected us and have accused us and have come and done wrong things to us. That the, the, the other piece of this puzzle of understanding how you are forgiven is the process of being able to offer forgiveness to someone else. And that in and of itself might actually be the greatest weapon you have to offer somebody in this world who does you enormous harm. I'm going to read this article and we're going to close. It's from Christianity Today. It talks about the Coptic Christians that are, that's word means Egyptian, so these are Christians in Egypt. And you might have read about the Coptic Christians. They're called Copts. Um, they essentially uh, are committed to, to being in this part of Egypt that is really surrounded by Muslim terrorists that, con- that constantly are dragging them out and killing them and cutting their heads off. Um, this article is about Palm Sunday, and we, we actually prayed for this. On Palm Sunday, um, there was, there was a, a, an attack, an attempt on a church, a Coptic Christian church. Uh, a suicide bomber went in, um, detonated, and um, we'll find out here why only 12 people died. But let me read this article to you. It says, 12 seconds of silence is an awkward eternity on television. Amir Adib, perhaps the most prominent talk show host in Egypt, he's the celebrity, leaned forward as he searched for a response. Quote, the cops of Egypt, silence, are made of silence. Steel, he finally uttered. See, moments earlier, Adib, the reporter, was watching a colleague in a simple home in Alexandria speak with the widow of Nassim Fahim, the guard at St. Mark's Cathedral in the seaside Mediterranean city. On Palm Sunday, the guard had redirected a suicide bomber through the perimeter metal detector where the terrorists detonated, likely the first to die in the blast. Fahim saved the lives of dozens inside the church. Here's what Adib was responding to. The wife of the, of, of the cop who died is interviewed and she says this, and this is, this is what I want you to listen to. I'm not angry. I'm not angry at the ones who did this, said his wife, children by her side. I'm telling him, my, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dared dreamed. Stunned, Adeemed stammered about cops bearing atrocities over hundreds of years, but couldn't escape the central scandal. And this is what he says. Adib's not a Christian. How great is this forgiveness you have? His voice cracked. If it were my father, I could never say this, but this is their faith and their religious conviction. How great is this forgiveness you have? That evening, 
after the bombings, one of the Orthodox priests gathered the church around. And of course, there was televisions there. And this is what he says to the broadcast. He says, I long to talk to you about Christ. And right now he's talking to the terrorists. And tell you how wonderful he is, said George, addressing the terrorists. But then turning to the church, he said, how about we make a commitment today to pray for them? When people see this attitude from Christians in the church, they ask themselves, what kind of power is this? Listen, how great is this forgiveness that you and I have? Chapter 9, the blood of Jesus is showing that you are forgiven so that you can now be prepared to go show forgiveness to others. It is our greatest weapon, friends. Would we be a people holstered with this type of love? Because we are a people who bask in the enormous act of forgiveness that has been shown to us in Christ. A people who truly know and live out the cost of forgiveness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us an impossible task. You have asked us to do something that if left to ourselves, we could not do. But you don't do that. You go first. You don't just talk the game, you do it. You lay your life down for us. You shed, you pour out your blood for us so that we would have forgiveness And in return, you say to us, this is how you will forgive others. And this is also how you will know the love that I have for you. Would we be people who love much because we know that we are forgiven much? Would you go with us now in the ways that we are learning to do this? Would you not shame us? Would we not feel the shame and guilt of not doing this well, but trust that this is something that can happen because of what you have done for us. Would you lead us? Would you, would you go before us and guide our steps as we attempt this enormous task? Not just before those that, those that we love, but before the watching world as well. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.